man has for centuries attempted to fly. The first objects that they tried to put into the air were mechanically incorrect and possessed far insufficient fuel to ever support flight. And gravity won time and time again. The second wave of objects overcame some of these slightly. Minor improvements in the mechanics and minor improvements in the fuel were not able to sufficiently overcome gravity. Few feet were flown, but gravity won. The third wave of objects had sufficient fuel and mechanics to overcome the power of gravity so long as they had fuel to stay in the air. But then, when the fuel ran out, gravity won again. The fourth wave of objects consisted of rockets that had sufficient mechanical and fuel ingenuity to be able to launch them above the power of gravity, even into our atmosphere, where in fact gravity helps them stay in orbit as they continually fall to the Earth but never hit it. And they will stay in orbit for 30, 60, or even 100 centuries. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Now, if I were to say those things and walk out of this pulpit, I would say that the vast majority of you would be utterly and totally confused as to why I said those things. And even after I explain them, you might still be there. Um, I don't actually know if, if that's a good introduction or not, but we're going to find out. Jesus spoke in parables. And the oddity of what I just said is very much akin to the oddity of the first parables that he would have spoken. He just sits down and he speaks parables. And people look at him and they're like, I don't understand a word that you're saying. Why are you giving us this sort of agricultural metaphor? And we didn't even know that it's a metaphor. It's a very strange thing. Some of you might be happy if I would have stopped now because at least it would have been a short sermon. But we have an extra hour today, so strap in. <laughs> the other Gospels outside of the, the book of John focus a lot on Jesus speaking in parables. It is the natural mode of his teaching to speak in parables, and John has very few parables, zero by many counts. I think that John 8.35 might count as an incredibly short parable. But it is, if one, the only one in our gospel today. Yet, that doesn't mean that John doesn't have Jesus using things that are parable-like. And I think that the story of the man being born blind and the trial that he is about to go under can be sort of illuminated by appealing to the same sort of parable that I just told. And that is the parable of the soils. As we will read in each of the gospels, but we will be taking it from Matthew chapter 13. And what I would like to do today is just take these four soils and apply them to the characters and the people in our text today and see how it is that they end up where they are with Jesus. The parable of the soils in the Gospel of Matthew reads like this. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Let us then apply this to the text in the Gospel of John that we will be reading now. John chapter 9, verses 13 through 34. 
they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said, to the <clears throat> so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the word of our God. I would like to point out the four different types of soil that we can see in the four different groups of characters here. And the first soil is the hard soil. Hard soil that has been calloused by pride. The hard soil was the worst kind of condition. Jesus, in interpreting the parable, says this, that when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is this is what was sown along the path. So the devil works in these kinds of people. He works to callous their hearts, to harden them up. He allows it so that no amount of sowing will ever allow the seed to sink in, that when the seed is tossed, you can hear it clinking down the path like so many marbles. The first group is clearly hardened and will broker absolutely no understanding of Jesus past the idea that he is a sinner. It is clear in the passage that as the word is sown in the Gospel of Matthew, so here Jesus is being sown among the people. Jesus is the one who is healed. It is the issue of Jesus that is at the forefront of all of this passage. The miracle is a sidelight, as we are going to see, and Jesus is really the issue. These people are clearly calloused by him. Notice what he says at the very beginning. When they say, 
what has he done? He again tells them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. And they say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Jesus would say and look at them and say, they are indeed father or children of their father, Satan. The question that comes before us is, what could Jesus possibly have done to have changed their minds? You say, well, he could have healed him on Monday. That's true. But given that he was going to heal him on the Sabbath and on that Saturday, what could he have done that was more magnificent than this? What, what could he have done? The man was born blind. This isn't, this isn't some sort of physical issue that happened when he was older that Jesus restored. He works from the very basis of the guy's genetics to rebuild. Something is wrong in him that he fixes on the most fundamental level. The man later on in this passage says this has never been heard of before. This hasn't ever been done. If there was ever a miracle that would make you think maybe there's something to this guy, this is the miracle. Now they weren't, they weren't wholly wrong in their statement here. And that is that just because we see the miracle doesn't mean we should accept him as the very prophet of God or even the very son of God. Deuteronomy warns us against this. Or Moses tells us that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice the issue there is that this dreamer of dreams, this guy who has visions, this prophet is going to come among you and he is going to do miraculous things. It's not that he's just going to lead people astray, but he is going to do so with power. And Moses says you can't follow him. Matthew has Jesus recording something along the same lines. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus admits there will be plenty of people who are going to stand up and do miracles. Miracles do not prove that someone is from God. So they're not all wrong. They are right in that a miracle can be misleading. The miracle and when he does it can't mean nothing, but they are wrong on the idea that the miracle counts for nothing. The miracle does count for something. It is proof of something. It is worthy of, of inspection. It's worthy of looking into. It's worthy of thinking about. It's not worthy of just rejecting him offhand simply because he doesn't do things the way you think he ought to do things. This is why their hearts are hardened. And listen, many people reject Jesus like this. Many people think that this religion thing is just bonkers from the get-go, and they think that the Jesus thing is even more bonkers than the rest of religion because you've got to believe in things like him raising from the dead. Not only the fact that he could raise other people from the dead, but the fact that he raised himself from the dead by the power of the Father. If you're an unbeliever here today, or if you are somebody who has claimed to be a believer, but you truly in your heart know that you're not, and you know that you reject all of it, and you're hanging on to it simply because you have family members who you don't want to embarrass, or you, you want to have a good face in front of your friends who are Christians, or whatever it might be. Do you reject Christ automatically because of things like this? Does it seem so foolish and obvious to you that this is just pure junk, and that it is not worthy of your time or your consideration? 
think many people reject Christ like this. My advice to you is simply to soften your hearts and to hear the word of God. Those who have hard hearts cannot do that, so that advice will probably go unheeded, but nevertheless, I would instruct you, soften your hearts. Listen to the word of God this morning, but let us be clear. The type of rejection that happens here does not just happen to people who have Jesus come in front of them for the first time. I think the parable of the soils is likely about the entire work of God in a lot of the person's life, but it can also be individual instances where the word of God comes to us. Do we reject certain things in scripture simply because we don't like them? That we have a conception of what life ought to be on one side and scripture says it's another way and we simply reject it offhand. Many of us refuse to listen to Jesus when he tells us things that make us, frankly, uncomfortable. We reject these things out of hand because we find them nothing less than distasteful. He says you are to love your enemies and to do good to them. He says you are to forgive your neighbors when they do wrong to you. That you are to think better of others, especially those who the world would look down on. That what you own is not yours. It is given to you by God for use by God. That your time is not your own. It is given to you by God for use for God. I don't think that it's a stretch to say that when Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon, he likewise meant you cannot serve God and Facebook or God and technology. You can't do both. The list could go on and on. We could list a number of things that make people uncomfortable, that they reject out of hand. Don't be hard soil. Listen to the word of God when it talks to you, when it says difficult things to you, listen to it and allow it to work in your lives. But this is not the only type of soil that people can be. The second soil that we will look at this morning is the thorny soil, which is choked by worries. Jesus says this about the thorny soil. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. They don't buy into the word. They don't believe the word, and the word doesn't ever work in them. They're choked out by the worries of the world. If the first soil has this sort of shocking solidity to it, the second group simply seems like they are well, they're flimsy in their questioning of it. You'll notice that the first group here in verse 15 says, or excuse me, in verse 16 says, this man is not from God, he does not keep the Sabbath. But others say, and listen to how they say this, it is not directly opposed to what that first group says. They, they sort of question it. They just kind of lay it out there. They're certainly not on the side of Jesus, but they, they don't sound like they're necessarily against him either. They say, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There seems to be a small glimmer of light here. They don't dismiss Jesus out of hand. They're, they're giving him a fair shot. They seem like they care about the fact that this miracle was done and that it, it actually does mean something to them. But notice... They simply pose it as a question. They don't say, one who does this could not possibly be a sinner. And when they hear the testimony of the man, the story seems to change. There is something about them coming to the man and saying, who do you say that he is? And him saying, he is a prophet. Because you'll notice that John goes out of his way. He goes out of his way to mention the fact that these two groups exist. That one group is diametrically opposed to Jesus. The other one is kind of open to the fact that he might not be a full sinner because he is able and capable of doing a miracle. 
John even goes so far as to say that there is a schism, there is a break, there's a separation between these two groups. There was a division among them. But then immediately after verse 17, that division up and vanishes. There is no more division inherent in any of the text. John mentions it and then he takes it away. And the one thing that happens in between him mentioning it and him taking it away is this man saying something as simple as he is a prophet. He's a prophet. And for whatever reason, as soon as the man says that, the opposition gels. They're able to miraculously see past their difference. The, the next line is not that everyone changed their hearts. Everyone listened to what the formerly blind man said and said, hey, you know, this Jesus guy probably not quite that bad. But what does the next sentence say in verse 18? The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They didn't believe it. He stood in front of them and said, listen, I was blind and now I see. How did that happen? Well, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. And he repeated it twice to them and they still didn't believe. The whole reason why people brought him to the Pharisees was not because he was claiming it, was because other people knew that it had happened. And now the Jews are saying, no, we don't believe it. Now it does say until the parents said it because at that point in time they couldn't escape it. But notice what they do. They're not gonna say he's a sinner. No, 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 because that would go against what they said in the first place. But instead, what do they say? Oh, no, it just didn't happen. There was no miracle here. There was nothing going on here of any special and proper work of God. They say, this didn't happen. But then once it happens, you'll notice that the Jews collectively, together, don't then cave into the idea that if a miracle was done, he might not be a sinner. Collectively, they, as John lumps them all together for a second time in verse 24, call the man and say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. All of a sudden, that sort of loose questioning is gone. Something has happened that calls into question their ability to accept Jesus. I don't know what it is exactly. My guess is, am I... Guess isn't as good as anyone else's, I wouldn't think, but nevertheless, it is my guess is that they heard the word prophet and they realized something that they just hadn't thought of before. And that is if this man who is doing miracles is indeed a prophet, then they would have to become his disciples as well. That he would be indeed speaking the words of God. That he would be indeed acting for God. They would need to come to him to understand what God is doing in their midst. They would need to repent and, and at least lower themselves to sit under his teaching as a rabbi. Therefore, they needed to reject him and reject him fully in order to save face and to do it in such a way that they could be shown not to be liars. Their declaration in verse 24 of give glory to God is nothing less than saying, you need to tell the truth. And what's more, in the context, it's clearly you need to tell us the truth which means nothing more than you need to tell us what we want to hear. These men are led astray, it seems. I don't think it's a stretch by the cares of the world. They want to keep their status among the people. They want to keep their place among the Pharisees because they know that if they accept Jesus, the other group is going to distance themselves immediately. So strong was their stance that there could be no reconciliation of the two. So instead of inspecting the scene, asking questions, and being led to the truth about Jesus, from their own admission, what they should have done, instead they are hardened. 
And they turn spectacularly, not just against Jesus, but against this poor blind man who had the audacity to have his eyes healed. In the end, regardless whether it's hard soil or it's thorny soil, the seed is unproductive. You need to understand something, friends. The worries of the world are not the worries of Jesus. You, you might be preoccupied with caring about protecting our culture and not seeing it wash away. You might be quite sure that you need to preserve our way of life or to keep your social standings. I'm going to tell you, I don't think Jesus is worried about any of those things. He's not worried about maintaining your culture and he certainly is not worried about maintaining your social standing. The worries of the world are not the worries of Jesus Christ. He is concerned with the glory of the Father. He is concerned with doing things that bring his Father glory. And that kind of glory is glory that our culture, our way of life, and our social status are frankly threatened by. And because they're threatened by them, these things can choke out the word. They will not allow it to do its work and they kind of cut off all potential growth. Frankly, many of us are here. Jesus, as much as he is a savior and he is kind and he is merciful to us, is also a threat to many things that we hold dear. He is a threat to your pocketbook. He is a threat to your employment. He is a threat to your rights. He is a threat to your weekends. He is a threat to your sense of well-being. He calls for you to lay down your lives daily for him and for the gospel. That is a threat to everything that you hold dear. Nothing is sacrosanct before Jesus. Nothing in your life is. He calls on your full and total obedience, your full love and faithfulness. He calls on you to show this both, not just before him, but before the people who sit in the seats next to you. People who you will not always get along with. People who will at times do distasteful things. And people who will seem very ugly before you. And yet there is to be forgiveness and there is to be love and there is to be kindness and there is to be graciousness shown again and again and again. The question is whether you feel that this sort of exchange is worth it. Is giving up all of your life worthy of the things that Christ says that he will give to you in their stead? All of the joy of heaven in exchange for all of the misery that your own desires bring upon you in this world. And the part of the thorny path the problem with the, the growth that happens among the thorns is that you aren't able to see the light from the thorns. All you see are the worries of this world and Jesus is telling you it's not worthy of your consideration. See past the cares and the concerns of the world and see something better. You may think very well of Jesus up until he requires things out of you. And then your worry begins to spring up and you can't see past them. And James warns you, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These are the thorns. They block out and they will crush your hope in Jesus Christ. But there is a third soil. The third soil is the rocky soil and it is withered by fear. Jesus says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. 
This rocky soil hears the word and receives it with joy, but it doesn't have any root in itself. Whatever that joy was, it wasn't grounded in them. And because of that, as soon as the sun comes out, which it inevitably is going to do, it dries up because it has no root. It has no depth in what it had joy in before. I'm telling you, the parents of this man fit this acutely. Can you imagine their joy at seeing their son? Now, the timeline in John here is not firmly set. We don't know if he was brought before them again a, a couple days later, if, if the Pharisees were, had the man brought before them that day, a couple hours later. But at, at no time does the Gospel of John ever insinuate that the man didn't meet his parents. The reason why they're calling him forward is because they must have known that he had received his sight. They don't say, is this your son who was blind? Well, he can see It's not their response. They know he can see, so they have met him. They know exactly what's going on. Can you imagine what that would have been like for them? Now, they have seen their son their whole lives. They can see, but their son can't. And this is the first time they get to look in his eyes and know that they look back at him. And they get to see the joy and the love and the care that their son has for them that they've never been able to experience before. I can't imagine what that must be like. To have love and care and concern for somebody, but to never see that in their eyes back for you. How wonderful and joyful that moment must have been. That the work of Jesus is sown among them and they receive it with joy. Even if they, even if, even if they were heartless people who didn't care at all about their son having his sight back. Listen, that is a burden that has now been lifted off of him. Even the hardest of person would have received this with joy because now their son can go out and do the normal things that every Jewish boy does. I doubt that they're like that. But nevertheless, there's no way that they wouldn't have received this with tremendous amount of joy. The problem is that they have no root in themselves. They might be thankful for Jesus, but they're not connected to him. They don't see themselves as intertwined by them. And as soon as the persecution comes, they wither. The leaders bring them in to verify the statement that their son has made. And they ask two questions. Is this your son who was born blind and how was he healed? They answer affirmatively. This is our son. Yes, indeed, he was born blind. We don't have the faintest idea how he was healed. Now, at first we might think that this is just ignorance on their part, that that they just met their son again and they just found out about all this. But even if that's the case, put yourself in this position. You meet somebody who, even if he's not your son, let's just say you meet somebody that you've known their entire lives and they were blind, and now they can see. What is the first question you ask them? Not like, how you like blue? Blue's pretty awesome, right? Like, you ask them, what happened? That is the first question. And if it's your son, that is more than the first question. Like, that, that is so basic that it comes out of your mouth before you even know you're saying it. What happened? Who did this to you? There's no doubt that the parents knew precisely who this was. And even if we doubt that, verse 22, verse 22, John lays it out. He says, no, they knew. They just refused to answer the question. He says, they said these things because they feared the Jews, because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Realize how great their fear of the Jews was, because they didn't even need to confess Jesus as the Christ. All they needed to say was, our son told us that Jesus put mud on his eyes, told him to wash, and that now he sees. That's it. But they were unwilling to even mention the name of Jesus Christ because they were that concerned 
of the Jews, putting them out of the synagogue. So terribly afraid. Again, friends, is this you? Is this me? Are we so afraid of what men think of us? Are we so afraid of what men can do to us that we are unwilling to speak of the name of Jesus Christ? Are you able to think nice private thoughts about Jesus but be unwilling to be persecuted for confessing his work and his word? What is here is an unwelcome fear of man, as we call it. What we mean when Christians typically use the term fear of man is simply a short way of saying someone who fears the opinions, the thoughts, and the actions of men more than they are afraid of the thoughts and the actions of God. They fear men. They do not fear God. Friend, you can't be more afraid of man's opinions and actions than of God's. The beginning of wisdom and of understanding is this. It's no less than the fear of the Lord. So one of the best summations of this, showing it very vividly, is by an, an old dude named Francis Bacon who wrote about lying and about telling the truth before God and before man this way. And I think it applies here. Bacon wrote, If it be well weighed, to say that a man lieth is as much to say as that he is brave toward God and a coward toward men. For a lie faces God and shrinks from man. When you are afraid of men, you are acting in a way to please them. But oftentimes you are also acting in a way that does not please God. And so what Francis Bacon is saying is, you will stand before God Almighty and you will act bravely before him. And you will say, I know you have commanded me to do this. I know that you have called on me to do this. I know that this is the very obligation that you have placed before me. I know this, and I'm not going to do it. I refuse to. I simply refuse to do it. But you will look at men who sit there and have opinions and thoughts of their own, and you will say, okay, okay, sir, whatever you want. The parents of this man wither in the face of persecution. They are all dried up. The trials and the tribulations that are headed their way, that they even perceive, they're not even actual, they just perceive that they might possibly be headed their way. Make them throw their son under the bus. You realize what they're doing, they know the answer, and they say, no, no, he's, he's at least 13. You can answer, ask him. Are you more afraid of what others think of you than of God? Are you more afraid of the opinions of your coworkers, of your family, of your neighbors and your relations than you are of God? Do you continually hope that other people will think well of you and simply assume that Jesus must? That somehow, in your way of thinking, Jesus always has to be nice to you. He's always got to be kind to you. And so just like that one really nice guy at work who's always going to say yes to everything you do, you go out of your way to simply assume and to presume upon the kindness of his grace and his mercy, not knowing that it is meant to lead you to repentance, simply assuming that it's there so that you can appease both men and God because God is just always going to be nice to you. So you might as well get, get niceness from men as well. Friends, let it never be. Don't be bold toward God 
and a coward toward man. Look at your life and recognize the great things that Jesus has done before you. Look at the salvation that he has afforded you. Confess it before men. Be able and willing to speak of it. In Luke 12, Jesus says this, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. No, be bold before men and be nothing but a coward before God. Let not the fear of men make you wither. But lastly, we should end on a good note, and that is the good soil. And the good soil is grown by trial. And I realize that that mixes metaphors really, really badly, but you're just going to have to put up with it, okay? So um, if Paul can mix metaphors, so can I. Uh, we can get over it. Jesus says of this last soil, as for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he bears fruit and yields, in some cases a hundredfold, in another case is 60, and another 30. The last soil is ripe for growth. And so when the seed hits it, it grows, and it grows much. And this man, the man who was blind but now sees, is a tremendous example of what it means to have growth in good soil. At first, he's a man of few words. It seems as though his tongue is loosened as we go along just as his eyesight is given back to him. He now perceives the world around him and now can speak directly to it with clarity. At first, all he says is, I am the man. And then they ask him, well, what has happened? And he reports to them. A very long passage, actually, in verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received my sight. Every time he is questioned after this, his report of the incident gets shorter every single time. In verse 15, he put mud on my eyes. I washed, and now I see. In verse 24, I was blind, and now I see. Verse 27, I done told you. <laughs> like, every step of the way, he's, he's getting more curt and more short with his explanation of it, and I doubt highly it's because he doesn't want to sing the old, old story. I think it has a lot to do with the people who are asking him the questions. He begins simply by declaring him a prophet and by telling what Jesus has done for him. And faced with this dilemma from the Pharisees about whether he is a sinner or whether he has done something wrong with the Sabbath, all he can say is he's a prophet. Not just a miracle worker now. He's gone one step further. He's not just somebody who healed me, but he's a prophet. He now realizes as they are putting these issues in front of him that he must be somebody who has come from God. And somebody who has come from God and carrying the message of God and be do, by doing that, carrying the work of God is somebody to be listened to. And yet during the second round of questioning after his parents are questioned, he really takes off. He refuses to answer the question about whether Jesus is a sinner or not. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. The man knows, I have no doubt, but he's being kind. He doesn't want to speak on something that he, as a an uneducated peasant boy who couldn't read and can't read because he just got his sight wouldn't be able to explain. He sees what's going on around him, though. This is not just a trial to ascertain whether or not Jesus is who he claims to be, but whether it is, it's rather something like an authorized mob who's doing nothing but seeking to knock down Jesus as far as they can and anyone who might stand up to them. 
So the man doesn't elaborate on the miracle anymore. He begins to shorten it and shorten it. His retort in verse 27 then seems to hit this theme on the head. He realizes that what they're questioning him about is not the miracle at all, but it's about Jesus. Listen to what he says here in verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now the man knows very, very well these folks don't want to become the disciples of Jesus because just before his, they said, we know he's a sinner. We know he's not from God. And so he clearly answers them sarcastically. They have just called him a sinner, showing great animosity toward him. And so the man asks this question to think that he asks it honestly, to think that he's actually plumbing for an answer here, is to sort of grossly misrepresent him and to make him unable to read the situation. I think that he's rather catching them at their own game. He cannot speak openly against authorities. This is just not what people in the first century did. We're used to it all the time. We're, we're used to people of low social standing being able to say anything they want to against leaders and authorities. This is the American way. This is what we were founded on, being able to talk up to our betters. But this is not the case in almost any other society anywhere. This, it just isn't the case. And I'm not saying that that's bad, and I'm not saying it's good, but I am saying that in the first century, for this man to open his mouth and to speak against the authorities who are questioning him is unheard of. And so the way he's going to get around that at first is by being sarcastic, saying, I don't really get why you're focusing on Jesus so much. You're not here to actually ask me about the miracle. What you are here to do is to have some sort of pseudo trial against Jesus. And so he pokes at them and he says, you're so obsessed with him, is it because you want to be his disciples? Now if that sounds familiar, it's a fourth grade argument for every boy who annoys a girl, right? And you see them annoying girls and you say, I bet you just wanna be the boyfriend, right? And we, we plot at him because it does one of two things. Either he does and he's ashamed of it and he starts to leave her alone, or he doesn't but he doesn't want people to think that and so he leaves her alone. The point is the same, it's exactly what he's doing. He's poking at them saying, you seem fairly obsessed with him. Maybe you want to be his disciples. And they say, no, of course we don't want to be his disciples. And their reviling of him is just as illuminating as what he had just said. They claim to be Moses' disciples because they know that he spoke words God gave him to speak. But they say they don't know the same of Jesus, which is a flat-out lie because they've already said that they know he's a sinner. So now they're, they're walking it back. They're saying, well, we know that Moses comes from God. We're actually trying to have a trial here about Jesus. They've already convicted him. We know he is a sinner, they've already said. Don't get so excited. We're just impartial judges, just doing what judges can. And Jesus has something to say about this back in John chapter 5, 39 and 47 and 45 through 47, where he talks about, you know, you, you think you've got Moses on your side. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they, they that bear witness about me. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had truly believed Moses, you would believe in me, because he wrote about me. This man is not quite able to speak to them about Moses, but neither is he so cowardly before them that he's going to let such foolishness go. And here you see the exact opposite of his parents. His parents wilted in this. They just, they, they crumbled, throwing their son under the bus. But he grows more and more bold before them. 
He says, you, you don't know if Jesus is before God. What does he say? This is an amazing thing. Are you kidding me? He says, are you gonna sit there in front of me and you're honestly gonna tell me you don't know where Jesus is from, you don't know if he's from God. He says, how many times have you heard of someone being blind from birth and being healed? How does God answer people? Does God answer sinners? Is he out here supporting sin? Is he out here propping up sinners? What do you think? Notice the way he's speaking, which sounds amazingly like Nicodemus in chapter three. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. If this man, he says, never since the beginning of the world has been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind, not even Elisha, not even Elijah, none of the prophets, this has never been done. He turns around and says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You're gonna sit there and you're, you can see he just pops. The man just pops. The man then is again identified with Jesus. Not just in his washing, not just in his own agreement that he is the man. But he is identified with Jesus because they cast him out. And they cast him out directly to where Jesus is. To be thrust out from the world is to be thrust into the lap of Jesus Christ. Jesus receives him. The blind man worships him. It was said in the first, second, and third century that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the early days of the church, the Roman society and the Roman government tried to squash out Christianity because they thought that it was detrimental to their Roman way of life but they found out that the more that they squished down, the more blood squirted out, the more plants started to shoot up. Last week I talked about how our suffering is often good because it allows God's glory to be seen all the more. And here we can see something of this man's double suffering. He not only was born blind so that God might show his works in him, but he was allowed to be healed, only to be dragged before the court, only to be humiliated by these people attempting to be humiliated by these people so that he might be cast out away from his parents who clearly are distancing themselves from him, away from his family and friends and away from the only religion that he has ever known. He is not allowed now to go back into the synagogue and to worship Christ or to worship God as it were. His rejection by the world, however, thrusts him toward Jesus. And friends, you need to marvel at the work of God here. Don't think that this happened outside of the purview of Jesus. Don't think for a second that when Jesus said, you will see the work of God, that what he meant was, you're going to see a blind man who will then see. What he meant was, you're going to see a blind man who will see and then will leave everything for me. That is the work of God. He will reject all of the world and the world will reject him. What does Paul say? I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. There will be an utter rejection of both of them, but this man will find a home. And we tend to fear persecution and trials. Friends, these are the very things that God uses to mature us. These are the very things that God uses to grow fruit in our lives, to drive us to Christ and to help us to understand who he is. It is a plow that produces good soil. It is a plow that rips and tears at the ground. It is a plow that, 
that rends it asunder so that good fruit might grow. This is what persecution does for us. It helps us to grow in our maturity before God. And not only to grow in them, but to then find joy in persecutions, in trials, in sufferings, in difficulties, because we know that it is those things in particular that help us to grow into Christ-likeness. So as James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you find trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Work that backwards. Do you want to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? Do you want to know Jesus and the fullness of his being and salvation? Do you really want to be as Christ-like as possible? Then you need to find joy in trials and suffering because those are the things that bring you there. It is the fertilizer that makes Christians grow. Don't shy away from these things. John isn't the only one to give us a picture. Jesus gives us a picture of this itself. Lest you think that the persecution only comes from the world and that God isn't behind it, Jesus gives us a different picture, a different agricultural metaphor. He says in John 15, the very first two verses of that chapter, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Friends, I am the worst gardener of all time but I know what pruning is. And I know a thing called pruning shears. And I know in order to prune, there is violence done. Don't think that God will not bring persecution and violence and difficulty to you. Don't think that he will keep you from trials and difficulties because it is those very things that help produce fruit in your life. So let persecution, trial, temptation, difficulties come so that the people of God may grow. So friends, don't harden your hearts today. Don't let the concerns of the world overtake you, nor let the fear of man drive you away. Rather, cast aside these concerns. And the problems that come from these concerns, embrace and joy, because these are the very things that are going to cause you growth as a Christian. What Jesus promises is not that these things aren't real, or that we will walk through this world with a whistle on our lips and a skip in our step. No, he doesn't promise that to you at all. More likely, he promises you a limp. Those obstacles oftentimes keep us on the right course, continually detouring us back to Jesus. Welcome the trials, for they are a fertilizer for growing Christians in Christ-likeness and for seeing the glory of God and the works of Jesus Christ. He has taken your sin. He has taken your shame. He has taken your death, and he gives you back nothing but life. Trust in him. Trust in his words. Do not trust in the things of the world and grow and grow and grow. Let us pray. Father, while we would not be so foolish to ask for persecutions to come, to ask that trials might hit us, to ask for difficulties to break in upon us, let us also not be so foolish as to ask for these things that might press us most closely to you to never happen to us. As your servant Charles Spurgeon says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. May we learn that also, Father. May we learn joy in trials so that we might be complete in you. May we see kindness in your severe mercies that your work in us may shine. We ask these things for our good 
and for your glory. Amen.